Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. November 7. On this date in history, in the year 1989, two African-American firsts in politics. In New York, former Manhattan Borough President David Dinkins, a Democrat, is elected New York City's first African-American mayor. While in Virginia, Lieutenant Governor Douglas Wilder, also a Democrat, becomes the first elected African-American state governor in American history. Although Wilder was the first African-American to be popularly elected to the governor's post, he was not the first African-American to hold that office. That distinction goes to Pinckney Benton Stewart Pinchback, a Reconstruction-era lieutenant general of Louisiana, who became Louisiana state governor in December of 1872. Pinchback served as acting governor for five weeks while impeachment proceedings were in progress against Governor Henry Clay Warmoth. Wilder served as Virginia governor until 1993, whereupon he was forced to step down because Virginia law prohibits governors from serving two terms in succession. In 1993, Dinkins was defeated in his bid to win a second mayoral term by Republican challenger Rudolph Giuliani. November 8. On this date in history, in the year 1994, Proposition 187 is approved in California. 59% of California voters approve Proposition 187, banning undocumented immigrants from using the state's major public services. Despite its wide margin of victory, the ballot measure never takes effect. In 1994, California, the home of Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, was not yet the Democratic stronghold many now consider it to be. A popular destination for immigrants from both Latin America and Asia, Its demographics changed dramatically in the second half of the century, but neither Republicans nor Democrats won a decisive share of these newcomers' votes. That would change after a group of Republican activists and state-level legislators responding to the state's economic slump and the presence of over a million undocumented immigrants decided to launch the campaign for what became Proposition 187. In the name of saving taxpayer money, the proposition prohibited the undocumented from accessing basic public services such as non-emergency health care and both primary and secondary education. It also required public servants like medical professionals and teachers to monitor and report on the immigration status of those under their charge. Although public support was high from the start, the threat of barring over a million California residents from basic public services stirred up vocal opposition. As Republican Governor Pete Wilson's campaign used the threat of immigration in an attempt to scare voters, 70,000 people marched against 187 in downtown Los Angeles, and 10,000 public school students walked out of class on November 2, just days before the vote. 
the measure's passage on November 8 was an entirely symbolic and short-lived victory for conservatives. Within a week, a legal challenge had prevented the new law from taking effect. It was held up in the appeals process until 1999, when a Democratic governor dropped the state's appeal. Studies have since shown that Proposition 187 played a key role in galvanizing immigrants' rights activists and pushing Latinx and Asian voters away from the California Republican Party. Over the next decade, 66% of the newly registered California voters were Latinx, and another 23% were Asian. In the same period, Republicans went from holding roughly half of elected offices in the state to less than a quarter. California has since formally repealed Prop 187 and enacted some of the United States' most sweeping protections for the undocumented. November 9. On this date in history, in the year 1990, Willie Nelson's assets are seized by the IRS. We try to work with taxpayers, Internal Revenue Service spokesman Valerie Thornton told the New York Times in the autumn of 1991. And if we have to come up with some creative payment plan, that's what we're going to do because it's in everyone's best interest. The creative payment plan to which Ms. Thornton was referring to in her statement to the Times involved a unique revenue-sharing agreement negotiated between the IRS and the beloved country singer Willie Nelson, who was then struggling to repay a $16.7 million tax debt that had led the federal government to seize all of his assets one year earlier, on November 9, 1990. Willie Nelson landed himself in tax trouble as a result of investments he made in the early 1980s in a tax shelter later ruled illegal by the IRS. With interest and penalties on top of his original unpaid taxes, Nelson was facing a tax bill in excess of $16 million, and though his lawyers convinced the IRS to accept a $6 million cash payment to settle the entire debt, even this was more than Nelson was able to pay, despite being perhaps the most bankable country music star of the day. He didn't have $1 million. He probably didn't have $30,000, his daughter, Lana Nelson, told the Texas Monthly Magazine of her famous, generous, and free-spending father. In anticipation of negotiations with the IRS breaking down, Willie Nelson had his daughter remove his beloved guitar, Trigger, from his Texas home and ship it to him in Hawaii, where he was golfing when the feds raided his home on November 9, 1990. As long as I got my guitar, Willie Nelson said, I'll be fine. Ultimately, Nelson did get to keep his guitar and even got his Texas ranch back, but not before the government auctioned his home to the highest bidder in January 1991. That bidder, however, was a Nelson fan who purchased the ranch at the behest of a group of farmers who threw their support behind Nelson in thanks for his work in organizing the Farm Aid charitable concerts. In June 1991, Nelson released a compilation album entitled The IRS Tapes, Who'll Buy My Memories? The first and perhaps last major label record album ever released under a strict revenue-sharing agreement with the Internal Revenue Service. While the revenues generated by the IRS tapes did not come close to settling the debt on its own, Nelson did manage to retire his debt to the federal government by 1993. 
November 10, on this date in history in the year 1969, Sesame Street debuts. Sesame Street, a pioneering TV show that would teach generations of young children the alphabet and how to count, makes its broadcast debut. Sesame Street, with its memorable theme song, Can You Tell Me How to Get, How to Get to Sesame Street? went on to become the most widely viewed children's program in the world. It has aired in more than 120 countries. The show was the brainchild of Joan Gans Cooney, a former documentary producer for public television. Cooney's goal was to create programming for preschoolers that was both entertaining and educational. She also wanted to use TV as a way to help underprivileged three- to five-year-olds prepare for kindergarten. Sesame Street was set in a fictional New York neighborhood and included ethnically diverse characters and positive social messages. Taking a cue from Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, a popular 1960s variety show, Sesame Street was built around short, often funny segments featuring puppets, animation, and live actors. This format was hugely successful, although over the years, some critics have blamed the show and its use of brief segments for shrinking children's attention spans. From the show's inception, one of its most loved aspects has been a family of puppets known as Muppets. Joan Gantz Cooney hired puppeteer Jim Henson to create a cast of characters that became Sesame Street's institutions, including Bert and Ernie, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, Grover, and Big Bert. The subjects tackled by Sesame Street have evolved with the times. In 2002, the South African version of the program, Takalani Sesame, introduced a five-year-old Muppet character named Kami, who was HIV positive, in order to help children living with the stigma of a disease that had reached epidemic proportions. In 2006, a new Muppet, Abby Kadabi, made her debut and was positioned as the show's first female star character in an effort to encourage diversity and provide a strong role model for girls. In May 2019, a Muppet character, whose mother is battling addiction, was introduced acquainting kids with the opioid crisis. Since its inception, over 80 million Americans have watched Sesame Street. November 11. On this date in history, in the year 1978, the Dukes of Hazard make TV history with a car jump. A stuntman on the Georgia set of the Dukes of Hazard launches the show's iconic automobile, a 1969 Dodge Charger named the General Lee, off to a makeshift dirt ramp and over a police car. That jump, 16 feet high and 82 feet long, made TV history. Although more than 300 different General Lees appeared in the series, which ran on CBS from 1979 until 1985, this first one was the only one to play a part in every episode. That jump over the squad car ran every week at the end of the show's opening credits. The General Lee was a neon orange charger with 01 painted on the doors a Confederate flag on the roof, and a horn that played the first 12 notes of the song Dixie. It belonged to the Dukes of Hazard themselves, the cousin Bo, played by actor John Schneider, and Luke Duke, 
actor Tom Wopat, who used it to get out of dangerous scrapes and away from the corrupt county commissioner, Boss Hogg. Because practically every one of the General Lee's stunts ended up wrecking the car, the show's prop masters bought every 1969 Charger they could find. And there were plenty. The Chrysler Corporation sold about 85,000 in all. Then they outfitted each one for action, adding a roll cage to the inside, a protective push bar to the nose, and heavy-duty shock absorbers and springs to the suspension. The prop masters also tampered with the brakes to make it easier to do the 180-degree bootleggers turn that so often helped the Duke boys evade Boss Hog. Cars used for jumps also got trunks full of concrete or lead ballast to keep them from flipping over in mid-air. While the Dukes of Hazard was on the air, the General Lee got about 35,000 fan letters each month. Fans bought millions of remote-controlled and toy versions of the car, and some even modified their real cars to look like Dukes's Charger. Indianapolis D.J. Travis Bell restored the original General Lee in 2006. November 12. On this date in history, in the year 1864, the destruction of Atlanta begins. Union General William T. Sherman orders the business district of Atlanta, Georgia destroyed before he embarks on his famous March to the Sea. When Sherman captured Atlanta in early September 1864, he knew that he could not remain there for long. His tenuous supply line ran from Nashville, Tennessee, through Chattanooga, Tennessee, then 100 miles through mountainous northern Georgia. The army he had just defeated, the Army of Tennessee, was still in the area and its leader, John Bell Hood, swung around Atlanta to try to damage Sherman's lifeline. Of even greater concern was the Confederate cavalry of General Nathan Bedford Forrest, a brilliant commander who would strike quickly against the railroads and river transports on which Sherman relied. During the fall, Sherman conceived of a plan to split his enormous army. He sent part of it, commanded by General George Thomas, back toward Nashville to deal with Hood, while he prepared to take the rest of his troops across Georgia. Through October, Sherman built up a massive cache of supplies in Atlanta. He then ordered a systematic destruction of the city to prevent the Confederates from recovering anything once the Yankees had abandoned it. By one estimate, nearly 40% of the city was ruined. Sherman would apply to the same policy of destruction to the rest of Georgia as he marched to Savannah. Before leaving on November 15, Sherman's forces had burned the industrial district of Atlanta and left little but a smoking shell. November 13. On this date in history, in the year 2020, Kim Ng named the first female Major League Baseball general manager. Veteran front office official Kim Ng breaks several glass ceilings simultaneously when she is named general manager of the Miami Marlins. Ng is the first woman and first person of East Asian descent to lead a Major League Baseball front office, as well as the first female GM in the history of North American professional men's sports. Ng, the daughter of two Americans of Chinese descent, played softball at the University of Chicago and wrote her college thesis on the effects of Title IX. She has spent her entire career in Major League Baseball, 
beginning with an internship for the Chicago White Sox. After six years with the White Sox, she worked in the offices of the American League before the youngest assistant GM in the league in 1998 when she was hired by the New York Yankees. Her talent was widely discussed during her time with the Yankees, who won three World Series in her four years in New York. In 2000, Yankees superstar Derek Jeter presented her with a Women in Sports and Events Award. She soon moved on to become vice president and assistant general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, where she spent nine years before moving to the Major League Baseball front office. Between 2005 and 2020, Ng reportedly interviewed for at least five vacant GM positions and was often referred to as a GM-in-waiting. Nonetheless, she did not receive an offer, even as young and relatively unproven male executives like Theo Epstein received acclaim and lucrative jobs across the league. It was Jeter, now the chief executive and part owner of the Marlins, who finally picked Ng to lead a team's baseball operations. There's an edge. You can't be it if you can't see it, Ng said at a press conference announcing her appointment. I suggest to them, now you can see it. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for November 7 through November 13. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.